Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 32. Have you got the Chaplin Oyer? The press couldn't agree. Some called the craze Chaplinitis, others called it Chaplin Oyer. Which one was I suffering from? Well, I'm pretty sure my Chaplin wasn't inflamed, although as far as I was concerned he was a more or less constant itch. No, I reckon I had the Chaplin Oyer. I was seeing him literally everywhere. Every main street, it seemed, of every town everywhere had a movie palace which was showing Chaplin's films, and every one had a life-size saw-cut figure of the little man standing on the pavement outside to beckon people in, a speech bubble suspended above his head, crying out, I'm here. You couldn't open a newspaper without stumbling upon the new cartoon strip, Charlie's Comic Capers, or a story about how the French had dubbed him Charlot, as if to claim a direct lineage back to the Piero figure of Commedia dell'arte, or else some other wild assertion that the only English word known by the fanti savages of a shantyland was Charlie. You couldn't walk into a shop without dodging a balloon seller with a likeness of Chaplin stretched into a ghastly gurn on some garish yellow monstrosity. You couldn't buy cigarettes without first reaching over Charlie Chaplin candy, or a table of plaster statuettes of Charlie Chaplin, or a prominent pile of the Charlie Chaplin scream book. You couldn't stroll into a music shop to browse without first wading through snowdrifts of sheets with titles like The Chaplin Waddle, Those Charlie Chaplin Feet, and most gallingly, Charlie Chaplin, The Funniest of Them All. Charlie Chaplin's Life Story. Evidently he arrived as a penniless immigrant and not a well-established Carno comedian earning three times as much as the other members of the company. Charlie Chaplin dolls, Charlie Chaplin toys, Chaplin derby hats, which had gone out of fashion but were now available pre-battered and artfully dusty, Chaplin ties and Chaplin socks. What imbecile would buy such a thing, let alone wear them? Charlie Chaplin playing cards, Charlie Chaplin lapel pins, Charlie Chaplin lucky charms, and Charlie Chaplin coins for use in slot machines. It was madness. Meanwhile, Stan and I were at a loose end. When we got back to the apartment after the Ed Hurley as Chaplin debacle, he and Wren had already packed up and shipped out without saying goodbye or leaving a note, or, I might add, any cash to cover their outstanding portion of the rent. The only parting gesture they'd made, and I strongly suspect that this was Edgar rather than Wren, was to smash all the little Chaplin statues that Stan had accumulated over the preceding weeks into plaster dust. Of all the Chaplin memorabilia that was on the bursting market, the statuettes were the ones I minded the least, funnily enough. This was because they were being pirated, and were the subject of a bitter and messy lawsuit by Chaplin and SNA, his film company, and the thought of all the trouble they were having to go to gave me a little thrill of pleasure, just a little one. Claude and Gordon Bostock took charge of our affairs. They cancelled all our upcoming engagements, which amounted to about four weeks of work, and advanced the two of us some spending money to tide us over until they'd had time to come up with a new plan for us. 
We were summoned to a meeting with the Bostocks at the end of the following week, in Cleveland, Ohio, and we were more than happy to leave things in their hands until then. I was looking forward to seeing them again, hoping that a letter from Tilly might have arrived at their office. We paid off our landlord and made our way in leisurely fashion to Cleveland by train, with a few days to kill on the banks of Lake Erie. Of course, we'd barely walked a block from the railway station before we were greeted by a grinning cutout of Charlie Chaplin outside a picture palace. In case it didn't attract your attention at first glance, a little clockwork mechanism rocked his head from side to side, along with its I'm here speech balloon. Stan stopped and looked at this, shaking his own head from side to side. Incredible, isn't it? he said. Mmm, I scowled. Look, they're showing a couple of new SNA films. I haven't seen these. Let's go inside, come on. Oh, do we have to? I groaned, but Stan was already pushing through the big glass doors and heading into the lobby. I sat through The Tramp and a jitney elopement, with Stan eagerly lapping it up beside me. There was a healthy mid-afternoon attendance, chuckling and sighing at the little fellow's antics. The biggest laugh of all came during a sequence in a jitney elopement, and there was a noticeable shift in Stan's mood afterwards. We strolled along a wide boulevard, out in the sunlight once again, but Stan was under a dark cloud. "'You saw,' he said. "'Of course you did.' "'Well, yes,' I said. "'Back in 1910, when we were with Carno, "'the governor proposed a new sketch in which the main character "'was a dreamy boy who fell asleep "'and found his dreams coming to life around him. "'Charlie didn't think much of it and refused to play the main part, "'whereupon Carno suddenly promoted Stan from the ranks "'to play Jimmy the Fearless.' My friend had made a huge hit of the new skit, devising all sorts of business which made it sing, including a little routine which was actually born out of his own nervousness the first time we performed it. Jimmy would absent-mindedly cut himself a slice of bread whilst dreaming of pirates, and when he came to himself he would find that he'd cut the loaf into a concertina, which he would then pretend to get a little tune out of, and always brought the house down, as it just had, when Charlie did it in the jitney elopement. Remembering how Charlie had sat in the middle of the front row every night, and gone to Carno and offered to play the part after all, reducing Stan to the supporting cast, didn't make it any better. We soothed the ache with liberal amounts of anaesthetic, by which I mean best bourbon, and then, finding ourselves in the unfamiliar position of having no show to fill our evening with, we sank some more. <laughs> The next day, a little headachey, truth to tell, we decided to ride the streetcar out to Luna Park, which was an attraction of a kind known as a trolley park. The streetcar companies built these at the end of their trolley lines, and there'd be picnic areas, trees, lawns, and often some rides and other attractions. The idea being that people would have a reason to use the cars at the weekends. Anyway, we were rattling along through the wide, sunlit main streets of Cleveland, and I was lost in my own thoughts, thinking of Tilly, of the boy, and of what next. Maybe the Bostocks would have a letter for me. I glanced absent-mindedly up towards the other end of the streetcar, and there, like an apparition from a nightmare, was Charlie Chaplin. He was dressed in his distinctive on-screen get-up, and making his way with that oh-so-familiar gait up the car towards me, tipping his hat at the ladies and pretending to trip over gentlemen's outstretched legs, and people were laughing, of course they were. I felt seriously unsettled then, and gripped the arms of the seat before risking a glance at Stan, anxiously, hoping he was seeing this too. To my relief, he was, and he was amused. Charlie reached the centre platform of the streetcar, where those passengers standing gave him a little room. He gave a little cough and began to sing. 
You are my honey, honeysuckle, I am the bee. The hairs on my arms stood on end, and I felt suddenly chilled to the bone. I had heard Chaplin singing this very song to a girl called Hetty Kelly, his first love, for all I knew, in London's Trocadero, while I myself was walking out for the very first time with Tilly, back in 08. What was happening? Was I losing my grip? But no, everyone else seemed to be hearing what I was hearing, and enjoying the song, and slowly, gradually, I came to myself again, and recognised that the voice was not Charlie's, that the singer was a young boy of about twelve, and this was not Chaplin at all. I let out a sigh, I was so relieved. When the boy busker came to our end of the car, holding out his derby, I gave the kid a dime, which he flicked up with his thumb, caught, bit between his teeth, and then slipped into his pants pocket. "'Thanks, mister,' he said, with a cheeky wink. "'Why ever are you dressed as Chaplin?' I said. "'Why ever not?' the kid said. "'Well, he's completely silent. He's known for it. Isn't it a bit strange for people when he starts singing? Why not dress as an actual singer, like Al Jolson?' I'll tell you, mister, the tramp clothes are a lot easier to put together for a start. Then there's the walk. Once you get the walk off, it's a piece of cake. People are already laughing. Then the song is a kind of bonus, you see? Smart kid, Stan grinned. Say, you fellas are from England, ain't you? We acknowledged this with a nod, and the kid beamed. Me too. My folks came over from London a few years back. My old man's a stonecutter from Eltham. Do you know it? We do, Stan said with a smile. How about that? I'm Les the kid said, tipping coins into his hand and then popping his derby back on his head. See you around. Good luck to you, Stan called. At the end of the line, we hopped off the trolley and made our way up to the entrance. As we did so, a slight Chaplin-esque figure stepped off as well, and I thought nothing of it for a moment, thinking it would be young Les. But no, there was the kid over there, already striking up a song for the pleasure seekers by the gates. This was another one. Stan and I strolled into the park, which was pleasantly verdant, and there, on one of the paths a few yards ahead of us, Chaplin was twiddling his cane and strutting his splay-footed way. And there, off to my left, another Chaplin raised his hat to a lady, and two more strolled along, arm in arm, and another waited in line for an ice cream. I shook my head to clear it. I had the Chaplin oyer all right. Hey, Stan said, seemingly oblivious to the Charlies everywhere I looked. Let's give that a go, shall we? He led the way over to an attraction called Shoot the Shoot, and we took our place in the queue to have a ride. A boat-shaped car on rails filled up with about twenty people in front of us, and then began to climb up to the top of its run. The course was oval-shaped, beginning with this uphill section of track, and then it would swing round and the car would plunge thrillingly into the lake, drenching passengers and passers-by alike, finally floating round again to return to its start position. I watched from the front of the roped-off queue as the little carriage swung around the raised curve at the far end. As it rolled towards the vertiginous drop, I suddenly noticed that the three people in the front row were all Charlie Chaplin. I gripped the rope tightly in disbelief as the contraptions shot down into the lake amid delighted squeals, and the three Chaplins were soaked, as was I, and, when I looked around, two more Chaplins queuing behind Stan. The empty car stopped in front of us, and we stepped aboard to take our seats, unable to avoid sitting in the puddles from all its previous rides. I was in the middle of the front row, Stan was to my right, and then, hopping in to sit at my left, was Charlie Chaplin. I blinked, beginning to feel like I needed a serious lie down and perhaps some kind of tonic. Up we went, and then round, inching towards the plunge. I couldn't look at the person to my left, so I trained my gaze on the trees at the far end of the lake. At the very last second, 
A gap between them seemed to open, and I saw what looked like a large open meadow beyond. In that sea of green, dozens of chaplains cavorted backwards and forwards, like it was an enclosure in a zoo and they'd been breeding them for years. Chaplain after chaplain raced this way and that, and, no, I wasn't mistaken, several were playing leapfrog. I raised a quivering hand to point this ghastly apparition out to Stan and opened my mouth to speak, and at that precise instant the car dropped down into the water, leaving my stomach and most of its accompanying internal organs back at the top of the slope. I reckon I swallowed about half of that lake, coughing and spluttering, and as we reached the end of the ride a solicitous face looked down at me. "'You okay?' said Charlie Chaplin, water dripping from the brim of his hat and the ends of his moustache. Stan hauled me to my feet, laughing his head off. "'So?' he said, as we stood dripping on the path. "'So what? So, did you see, over there?' he pointed towards the trees. "'What? All the chaplains? Did you see them too?' "'Of course. Ah, thank God. I thought I was going mad.' Stan strode off towards the field, and I splished and sploshed along in his wake, although I'd rather have gone almost anywhere else.' "'It's a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest,' Stan cried, as a raised stage hove into view, decorated with posters and signs indicating that there was, indeed, a rational explanation for what I'd been seeing. "'Let's enter it. Come on.' It appeared that, while dozens of chaplains had come along in their own meticulously appointed costumes, there was a trestle table round the back of the stage with spare jackets, trousers, battered derbies, shoes and canes for those who wanted to join in on a more impromptu basis.' Stan paid the entrance fee for both of us before I could stop him, and he began burrowing in the piles, making a serious effort to put on a good show, while I sifted somewhat less enthusiastically, suffering a strong sense of déjà vu, having similarly thrown together the outfit for the stowaway back at Keystone, just to show Charlie how simply it could be done. He'd learnt that lesson well, I reflected, since the stowaway's costume could now be seen on every second person walking around Luna Park. Anyway... Long story short, the contest got underway in front of a good-natured throng, most of whom seemed to have a relative in the running. Every chaplain, and there were dozens upon dozens of them, got about half a minute to demonstrate their mastery or otherwise of the chaplain waddle or those chaplain feet. It rapidly got more than a little samey, in all honesty, and those who had the good fortune to go early had a distinct advantage. Finally, the judges went into a little huddle, and shortly after that, the Master of Ceremonies called for hush, and read from a piece of paper. "'What tremendous fun! Thank you to everyone taking part! Our winning Charlie Chaplin is... Number 41! Leslie Hope!' Well, blow me down if it wasn't young Les from the streetcar who bowled out to collect his prize. He was a cocky little so-and-so, and seized the opportunity to show off a little more. "'I guess it's because I'm from London, England, just like Charlie,' he said. "'But I reckon everyone did just fine.' He got a handsome round of applause for that, and reprised his chaplain as he waddled from the stage. It wasn't bad. The lad had funny bones. And Leslie Hope, the twelve-year-old winner of the Luna Park Chaplin Lookalike contest, would later find fame as a comedian, after changing his first name to Bob. As for me, I guess the judges simply weren't ready to appreciate my own effort, in which I had concentrated less on the funny walk and more on trying to depict the darkness of Chaplin's soul. And the nation's premier Chaplin impersonator? He placed third. Don't tell the Bostocks, he grinned. Don't want them to change that billing, do we?
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Chapter 33, Alice and Baldy Claude and Gordon Bostock were waiting for us in the dining room of the Hollanden Hotel, a lavish wood-panelled establishment in which the dark redwood and mahogany fittings were offset by a large crystal chandelier. If their intention was to impress us, then it most certainly worked. At other tables, with their perfectly white tablecloths and silver service, the city's bigwigs were holding meetings of their own, and there was a constant low rumble of masculine voices coming from the collection of bulging waistcoats with their gleaming gold watch-chains. "'Boys!' Claude beamed. "'Great to see you. Come and have some tea, why don't you?' A waiter was in attendance before the seats of our pants had touched the seats of our chairs, and we nodded for tea. I could see that Stan was a little uncomfortable, as I was, feeling distinctly underdressed, but Claude was in his element. "'Excuse me, Claude,' I said, "'but before we begin, I hope you don't mind my asking, has anything arrived for me, from England?' "'I'm afraid not,' Claude frowned. "'Gordon?' Gordon shook his head. I bit down my disappointment and smiled. "'That's all right. Never mind,' I said, and Stan placed a consoling hand on my arm. Claude gave this a moment, and then got straight down to business.' Now then, we feel, do we not, Gordon, that there is great potential in you boys? Gordon wafted a hand in languid agreement, and Claude went on. The more so now that you have divested yourselves of that creature Hurley. A shame about his wife. She was an asset. But he... Claude permitted himself a shudder that said more than words could have done, although I would have liked to hear the words if they were uncomplimentary about Edgar Hurley. As you know, we're coming up to summer, which is pretty much an off-season for small and medium-time vaudeville. Some of the larger venues with the big headliners can keep going all year round. Now some of them have these cooling fans that blow air over large blocks of ice. We've seen them, haven't we, Stan, at the new Pantages in Winnipeg? That's right, Stan agreed. We neglected to mention that we'd seen the cooling system close up, whilst shoving a couple of ripe dead cats and a distinctly laked skunk in there to sabotage Alexander Pandridge's big opening night on behalf of his rival John W. Considine. It might have made us sound a bit balmy. Uh, Just so. But for the smaller time, as I say, the theatres are mostly shutting down for the hotter months. Nobody wants to be sitting indoors in a crowd when the weather makes it so oppressive. So what we thought, Gordon and I, was that we should take advantage of this fallow period, as it were, to redesign your act and get it ready for a big new push in the fall. How would that be? Thank you, Mr Bostock. Mr Bostock, that would be grand, Stan beamed. We shall subsidise your living expenses the while, so you will not be out of pocket. Very generous, I said. Oh, self-interest, I assure you, Mr Dando. We plan to make a lot of money out of you fellows. Hey, Gordon? Gordon gave a half-smile and shot his cuffs. I think a four-hander is a fine way to showcase what you're capable of, Claude went on. So we'd like to suggest... Ah, here they are, right on cue. That's a good sign, isn't it? 
Claude got to his feet and beckoned over a couple who had just walked in. "'My dears, this way!' he called, and the newcomers came over. "'Let me make some introductions. "'This is Stan Jefferson and Arthur Dando. "'Boys, meet Alice and Baldwin Cook.' "'The Cooks, a married couple, evidently, shook our hands eagerly. "'Alice was slender and blonde, with bright eyes and a very open expression. "'Baldwin was a bundle of energy, with a great luxuriant shock of dark hair. "'Baldy!' he cried, as he pumped my hand up and down. "'I beg your pardon?' I said. "'Baldy! Everyone calls me Baldy! It's short for Baldwin, of course, but I've got lots of hair, so it's also a gag. Get it?' "'I surely do,' I said. "'It's a good one.' Claude made sure everyone was seated and had been furnished with a cup of tea, and then he pressed on with his proposition. "'Alice and Baldy here were also in a four which just split, weren't you, with your sister and her husband?' "'Least said about that, the better, I think,' Alice said, with a sidelong glance at us. "'Well, I give them the highest imaginable recommendation, and I'm sure you will all get along handsomely.' "'I'm sure,' Stan said. "'What should the act be?' "'Oh, there's no need to throw baby out with the bathwater,' Claude said. "'I should think a reworked version of what you were doing will do very nicely.' "'After all,' he said, turning to the cooks, "'Stan here is an absolute non-pareil as chaplain. Isn't he, Gordon?' Gordon concurred by inclining his head. I took a deep breath. After all, if I didn't say something right that minute, the deal would be done, and I felt my mental well-being was on the line. "'Does it absolutely have to be a Charlie Chaplin act?' I ventured. "'He's on the up now, but who knows how long it will last, and is he really as popular as all that?' "'Really?' Stan looked at me as though I'd gone mad. "'Have you forgotten Luna Park already?' he said. "'No, but surely he's just a fad, a passing novelty. "'I mean, can we really set so much store by people being so very desperate to see him, him, and only him?' Claude looked at Gordon, who raised a hand and beckoned a beige-liveried page-boy over. He gave the lad a dollar and a few whispered instructions, and sat back while the page trotted over to the hotel reception to collect a paddle— to which he attached a white card. He took a pen from the receptionist and wrote two words on this card. Then he raised the paddle above his head and began slowly pacing up and down the lobby. "'Paging Charlie Chaplin!' the boy called out. "'Paging Mr. Charlie Chaplin!' "'What there?' I said, but Gordon held up a perfectly manicured hand. "'Just wait a moment,' he said. We sat and watched the page-boy walking up and down, paging Charlie, and before very long a little crowd had gathered in the lobby to watch. It swelled and grew and built until there were people hanging over the banister rails on the staircase to get a better view of the star's imminent appearance. Word had reached the street outside, and more and more people thronged in through the revolving door until finally there was barely enough room for the page-boy to walk up and down with his paddle, and he was getting jostled and bothered by those waiting. "'Paging Charlie Chaplin!' we could hear him calling plaintively, wondering how far this was going to go. But we could also hear, "'Where is he? And where's Charlie?' A mumbling grumbling that turned into a chant of, "'Charlie! Charlie! Charlie!' And a stomping of feet, and a vigorous ringing of the reception bell. "'Charlie! Charlie! Charlie!' And then there were policemen shouldering in their way up to the desk to try and disperse the mob. Gordon Bostock turned to me and raised an eyebrow as if to ask, Satisfied? All right, I said. A very fair point. Well made. Fortunately, Stan and I hit it off with Alice and Baldy right away. 
we were able to rent a cottage for the summer in the Atlantic Highlands of New Jersey, a modest place with a path leading from the end of its garden down to a sandy beach, and the four of us felt like we were on holiday. Stan said he hadn't had a vacation since he was a boy in Ulverston, and I couldn't remember my family ever taking more than a day trip to Southwold during the summer months. We discovered a shared interest in drinking whisky. Indeed, I credit good old Baldy Cook with being the main influence behind switching my lifelong preference from beer to the demon firewater. Perhaps not a good thing, I grant you, but I don't blame Baldy for that. Alice could take a deal more of the sauce than her husband, who was a quick and cheerful drunk, and she quickly earned the nickname The Barfly. Every day we would toss ideas around and then maybe rehearse them up to see if they worked, and we would laugh and laugh until we were exhausted, and then gallop down to the sands and throw ourselves into the Atlantic breakers to wake ourselves up for the evening's drinking. Alice would regale us with tales of her upbringing in the business. Her father, it turned out, was an entrepreneur of sorts, who had managed Buffalo Bill Cody and his world-famous Wild West show, which she'd seen many times as a child, including once on a triumphant trip to Paris. There seemed to be hundreds of people in it, she recalled, bareback riding Indians circling covered wagons, and then soldiers riding to the rescue and massacring them all. They used to fling themselves from those horses, and you'd be sure they'd broken an arm or a leg, or a neck even, but then afterwards they'd be walking around as if nothing had occurred. It was quite a show. Baldy, meanwhile, was an amiable fellow, but seemed to have no particular comic talents. He was what we used to call a trier. He'd give it everything, but he just didn't have the natural instincts of a comedian, although he desperately wanted to be one. Often in my career, when I was at my best, I would exercise what I called the power, a sort of serene, almost supernatural control on stage. Baldy, I thought sadly, would never have that peculiar thrill. Nonetheless, he was game for anything we asked him to do, and he was terrific company. Then, one evening, we were throwing together a meal from some scraps and leftovers of previous evenings. Baldy was full of the joys, as usual, and suddenly began to sing, and a gorgeous baritone voice filled the cottage. Alice wandered through to listen, a proud smile on her face, and Stan came in from the garden where he'd been drying off after a swim, a look of frankest astonishment on his. Then he grinned at me, and I knew exactly what he was thinking. It was, we can use that. The skit we came up with during those blissful weeks was a variation on the nutty burglar scenario, which we called Crazy Cracksman. Alice played a famous singer, and Baldy her accompanist and manager, which meant we could open with a song. She bemoans her inability to attract publicity, and they come up with an idea for a stunt, whereby she will be the victim of a fake burglary. Baldy goes off to hire someone to turn the place over, and meanwhile Stan and I, as Chaplin and Conklin playing Waffles and Co. burglars as before, would arrive to burgle the place for real. We would be puzzled, of course, that the owner of the place was so obliging, and we crammed in lots of gangs as the three of us worked the set. There was a long sequence where we became entangled in flypaper, passing it from one to the other, and another bit where Stan would fall crazily off a high ladder, arms and legs akimbo, which brought the house down. Finally, Baldy would reappear, dressed as a burglar, having failed to find anyone to play the part for him, and the piece would dissolve into a chase and chaos as Alice turned on us, and a cop, usually played by the stage manager, would chase us all off. Trust me, it was an absolute riot. The four of us, now billed as the Stan Jefferson Quartet, played a few weeks of warm-up engagements to prepare for the full showing that the Bostocks had put us in for, at which a cluster of important bookers would run their eye over an evening's worth of aspiring turns. 
The act was coming together well, and we were in good shape, although it was a bit of a harem-scarum time. Once we were crossing into Canada to play a week at St. Thomas in Ontario, and we had four bottles of whiskey hidden in our props trunk. This was contraband, of course, and there was a hairy moment when we reached the border and a customs official demanded that we open up for inspection. He found the bottles quick-smart and called his colleague over. "'We're going to have to confiscate these,' he said, "'and there'll be a fine to pay if you don't want to spend a week in jail.' We didn't want to, but the money the Bostocks were fronting us wouldn't stretch to a fine, so we were facing a pretty gloomy prospect when Baldy suddenly piped up. "'Confiscate them if you want,' he said. "'They're just prop bottles for a vaudeville act. "'They're full of cold tea.' For a long moment, the customs men stared at the bottles, and it seemed certain that they would open one to check. But then they shrugged and handed them back. "'Uh, well, in that case, on your way,' the man said. Afterwards, we drank a happy toast to Baldy and his nerve, and he laughed. Obviously, when he said he would have to confiscate the bottles, what he meant was, drink them with his pal!' Another time, back in Troy, New York, we were out for a late snack, we couldn't afford a proper meal, at a favourite place of ours called the Hofbrau, when Stan caught sight of a familiar face across the marble-floored dining room. "'Bill!' he called. "'Come and join us!' It was Billy Ritchie, a wiry little Scotsman who'd been a number one for Carno back at the Fun Factory. He'd played with Tilly in Mike Asher's burlesque of Carno's Mumming Birds, which had ended in tears when the governor had got wind of it and stomped on stage to take retribution with his fists. "'Hello, Stan!' Richie cried. "'And Arthur, too! How are you doing, boys?' "'Not bad, not bad,' I said. "'This is Alice and Baldy Cook. Meet our old friend, Billy Ritchie.' "'Baldy?' Billy said, squinting at the wavy head of hair before him. "'A joke,' Baldy grinned. "'Aye, isn't it, though?' Richie said, his hand creeping involuntarily to his own thinning thatch. "'Sit down, sit down, what'll you have?' Stan said, and the cooks shot me a nervous glance. Until we played this full showing for the Bostocks and picked up some decent bookings, we were living on the very edge of bankruptcy, and could hardly stretch to treating a guest. Billy didn't know this, though, and as a Scot he would never turn down a free dinner, so he briskly ordered up a club sandwich and a highball, and then turned to me. "'How's that wee lass of yours? She was quite a catch, as I recall.' Tilly, I said. She's in England, I'm afraid. Oh, Bill said, seeing he'd touched a sore point. Bad luck, old son. Bad luck. Bill and Stan chatted away then about the turn he was currently offering on the Keith time, and about Chaplin, naturally. Billy Ritchie had played the drunken swell in Mumming Birds, and he indignantly claimed that Charlie had made a fortune doing his act. He wasn't the first to think so, nor was he the last and I was dying to put him straight by telling him how Chaplin had in fact appropriated my stowaway when I felt Alice tugging subtly at my sleeve. Psst, she said, and showed me under the table what she had in her handbag. It was a dime purse, a sort of mechanical contraption that she would put her dimes into as a way of making some small savings. The way it worked was that the mechanism wouldn't open up until there was five dollars saved up. But Alice was fretting about the upcoming bill, and she whispered, "'There's more than four bucks in there, if you can get it open.' I nudged Baldy, and between us we tried everything we could think of, pulling at the thing, tugging this way and that, jamming a fork into it, and then another, but it wouldn't give up the loot, until suddenly, with a great crack, it finally yielded, and coins went skittering across the marble floor in every direction. Stan realised immediately what had happened, and the four of us left Billy sitting there all by himself as his sandwich arrived, scrabbling around with our backsides in the air under tables and amongst other diners' feet, collecting up the dimes to pay for the damn thing. Although we were poor, we were happy, 
and we knew that in Crazy Cracksman we had a hit. We just needed the full showing to go well to make it so. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 